This is Kate Stanton, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Don Alley, president of Decision Support at CareBridge, a company that works with health plans and states to care for individuals receiving long-term support services. Prior to joining CareBridge, Don spent about a decade working in the federal government as chief strategy officer at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, and before that, as Deputy Senior Advisor for Value-Based Transformation at HHS. Dawn and I discussed the main initiatives she worked on at CMMI, including the Accountable Health Communities Model and Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program. Lessons learned during her tenure about implementing and delivering healthcare models at scale, and why Dawn is excited about the future of long-term care services and why she believes in CareBridge's model. Dawn, thanks so much for joining me on The Pulse. How are you How are you doing today? Great. How are you, Kate? I am good. So we have a tradition of asking our guests the same question to kick off the conversation. Um, so when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? So this is a little bit of um, an embarrassing question for me because I think <laughs> it like gives you a real lens into the earnest young person that I was. <laughs> <laughs> but also maybe how I started uh, the journey that got me where I am today, which is that I, from about the time that I was about nine, I wanted to be very specifically a pediatric oncologist. Mm. And this is because I had read an article in Reader's Digest. And so this <laughs> is embarrassing as nine-year-old Dawn was reading Reader's Digest, but about a, a girl who had had cancer and, you know, her doctors had not told her or she had not understood that her hair was going to fall out. And as a nine-year-old with long red hair myself, I just couldn't imagine how this would not be like front and center <laughs> conversations between a, a medical provider and their, their patient. And so thus began my, my journey on patient-centered care, I guess. But I, I was like, this has to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it yeah. sounds like you were taking like a patient-centric approach at a young age because that is something that really can impact people in big ways. Let's jump ahead a few years and think about when you were in college. I saw that you majored in gerontology and then you got a PhD in the field and it's a fairly specific one. So how did you identify it at a fairly young age as an interest of yours? Yeah, you know, I kind of switched from being interested in one lifespan, end of the lifespan to the other. But I think, you know, I have really been drawn to a multidisciplinary approach to thinking about health and I grew up for part of my childhood in rural Indiana, living with my grandmother, who was the manager of the Tippecanoe County home. So that's Mm. the county-owned public senior living option. And so I spent a lot of time with her. I spent a lot of time with um, older adults from a very young age. And one of the things that really impressed itself upon me, especially as I was going to college and was going to USC, which has an amazing gerontology um, Mm -hmm. program, was seeing the difference in in my experience, again, having grown up in in rural Indiana and um, the difference of like what was out there in terms of how people's life experiences were were impacting their health when they arrived at, at old age. So my mom was one of five, almost all of her 
siblings had at one point worked at the county home. They had worked as nurses aides. They had worked in the kitchen or the laundry. In many cases, by the time they were getting to, you know, what we think of as retirement age, already had really significant health problems and were managing those. And then also saw, you know, the group of people out there that are what you think of in terms of folks living their their golden years. And I was really interested in kind of how inequality plays out over the lifespan and, and why some people enter Medicare healthy and thriving and others uh, enter Medicare already needing really significant support. An example for of, of like how personal this was for me was that I remember I was sitting in a physiology of aging class that was part of my undergrad program at USC. And uh, the professor was talking about oral health issues and dentition in older adults. And I actually raised my hand and I was like, I'm sorry, I just, I don't understand. Are you are you saying that people would still have their own teeth in old age? Um, because mm. like where I had grown up, people just didn't have the same kind of access to dental care. And literally everybody I knew had dentures by the time they were 40 or, or 50. And so I think that just the way that health disparities accumulate over the, the lifespan and that people carry their, their lived experience with them really fascinated me. And I've always been inter- interested in this kind of intersection between public policy and health. So um, gerontology was was perfect for me. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense and super fascinating to hear about how your personal experiences influenced um, not only the area of study you chose in undergrad and then beyond that, uh, but also throughout your, your career. So after college, got a PhD in gerontology. You spent time in academia, the public sector, and most recently and today, in the private sector. Are there any specific career transitions you want to highlight, why you made this specific transition and why it was or was not the right choice for you at the time? So yeah, I spent about 10 years getting my PhD and then working in research and then about 10 years working in policy and then now have transitioned to the private sector. And for me, what I learned over that period of time were that there's really three things that I value and I'm looking for in a job. I want to be learning, I want to have impact, and I want to love the people that I'm I'm working with. And so I've been very flexible. I'm like a moth to a flame with those issues. <laughs> and as long as I can get those things, then um, you know, it's it's been less important to me what particular part of the ecosystem that I'm in, there've been a couple of really good pieces of advice that I've gotten in my career that I, I love to share with others. You know, one is if the reason you're taking this job is because of the next job, like don't do it. <laughs> I think people <laughs> sometimes try to be super strategic and are like, I need some provider side experience or I need business development experience or policy experience or, or whatever it is. And for me, you know, I have not been that as strategic. I've really just gone to where I feel like I'm going to be happy and have an impact and and serve me really well. Another great piece of advice I got um, was, you know, a, a mentor when I was thinking of leaving academia for government 
asked me, whose day do you want? And I think that's often a much better question than, you know, where do you want to be in five years? Like if when I was getting my PhD, you had told me that I would work at CMS, I would have been like, what are you talking about? Like I pictured <laughs> CMS at the time as like a place where people like stamped claims. You know, like I was like, <laughs> what, what on earth? I'm a researcher. But it was such a useful question because I was in an academic department and the reality was that when I looked around me, there wasn't anybody's day that I wanted. I had a ton of mentors and colleagues that I really respected and admired, but I didn't want to be department chair. And when I got found got into government, I found myself thinking like that job and that job looks so exciting. And I, I think that this question can be especially useful for people from marginalized backgrounds because it can be very hard and feel really audacious to say something like, I want to be governor, or I want to be dean, or I want to be CEO. That can be very intimidating. But saying like, whose day would I want? Mm-hmm. What do I think enjoy? Can be a little easier. And another thing that I found kind of related to that is that I've been tremendously impacted by shadowing experiences. You can learn so much in a day. Um, When I was at CMS, we often had students spend a day with us, and it's a great way to learn what a day in the life is like. And I think you're never too old or too senior for this. Um, When I first started at CMMI, a very generous ACO executive let me spend a day following them around. Um, which was a bit of a risk for them to kind of invite your regulator into the room with you, but it was it was so, so helpful. And then, you know, the last piece of advice is not to be afraid or to kind of embrace like rotating and throwing yourself into new circumstances, taking yourself out of one environment and putting yourself in the other. Uh, one of the most impactful experiences I had was when I was at CMMI, I'd been doing a lot of work in the areas of payment models around chronic disease prevention and, and social determinants. And at the end of the second Obama administration, had the opportunity to get thrown in really deep on issues related to uh, hospital and post-acute payments on a, a uh, rulemaking process around mandatory bundles. And it was so impactful to me. And it's been impactful to me also to kind of rotate between more high level strategic roles and more operational roles. And so I think that Annie Lamont calls this repotting yourself, <laughs> taking yourself <laughs> out of one place and repotting yourself somewhere else can just be tremendously valuable and, and give you a much broader perspective. Let's dig into your time in government. So you spent about 10 years uh, working in different parts of the federal government, including the Office of the Surgeon General, HHS, and mostly at the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, or CMMI. So can you share some of the main initiatives or problems you worked on during your tenure at CMMI? Yeah, absolutely. So at CMMI, um, I I really came to CMMI to work on the accountable health communities model and loved the process of getting that started and then seeing it come to life. And it's really exciting to see now the way that really the concept of health-related social needs is being used in policy by CMS and has spread throughout so much of the the industry. Um, And so that was was kind of my first experience going from um, concept to real model at at CMMI. Uh, I worked a ton on the expansion of the Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program 
And then had the opportunity to do a, a lot of work with the Maryland all-payer model. Uh, had the opportunity to work on some Medicaid behavioral health models, the integrated care for kids model and maternal opioid misuse model. And then toward the end of my time at CMMI, um, worked on the, the geographic direct contracting model. So I think all of those have this strong thread of thinking about population health and how to catalyze stronger relationships between healthcare delivery, public health, and taking advantage and integrating with community-based resources. Yeah, I actually wrote a paper last semester uh, for a class on the Accountable Health Communities program. So it's very cool to be talking to one of the creators of, of that program. I wonder if actually you can just share a little bit more about the process of starting with idea for a CMMI model to initial implementation spent a lot of time sort of poking around CMMI's uh, <laughs> website and sort of seeing how they lay out their models. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that process. And as you mentioned, you come from a research background, and I just imagine that could be quite helpful in this environment, just knowing the rigor that the the entity approaches, both sort of design, implementation, and then measurement. Yes, I could talk about this stuff all day. So CMMI has this extraordinary opportunity because of the way that it gets to focus on solving problems. So much of the framework that CMS operates in is different offices working on their statutory piece, which is the nature of the executive branch. But CMMI has this broad mandate to improve quality and reduce costs and to you know look at different ways to do that. So CMMI models uh, have, and the way that CMMI approaches models have evolved a lot over time. But my experience was that a CMMI model could start with something as high level as a mandate from the administration of like, hey, we need to be doing more on social determinants of health. Could you come up with something? Or like, what role can CMMI play in addressing the opioid crisis? So it could be that broad to something very specific, like a stakeholder has identified payment issue that CMS wants to test flexibilities around. Um, but then typically there's going to be a kind of concept process. It, it's going to involve a lot of looking at the literature and looking across what's happening with providers, health plans, the industry right now, looking at what's working. So it, with something like the accountable health communities model, there was a sense that CMMI needed to do more related to social determinants of health. And so at the time, and this was 10 years ago now, so it feels like ancient history, but we were looking at, you know, what was happening with Hennepin County and interesting Medicaid MCOs that were developing exciting community-based collaborations. We were looking at um, health leads and some of these models that were assessing health-related social needs. We were looking at the hub model and the role of community health workers. And then the other thing is that um, CMMI has typically had the expectation that the office of the the CMS office of the actuary would um, uh, develop an estimate of a model's potential savings or expenditure impact before that model goes out the door. So especially with a model on something like chronic disease prevention or health-related social needs, you're really digging deep into the literature to figure out, you know, how you can structure something that you can be confident is going to be 
at least has a good chance of being cost neutral and quality improving or or reducing costs. You're pulling together all of that information on the the literature and what's happening out in industry. And then you're also having conversations with stakeholders because you want to make sure that when you put something on the street, you know, if it's not a mandatory model that you're doing through rulemaking, that people will actually apply to participate. And that can be a big challenge as well, because, you know, again, you're trying to get to cost neutral or cost savings. And so you don't want to be so sort of generous with the participation terms that that you're going to give away the the store, but you, you don't want to be so narrow with them that that no one's going to participate. So it's a it's a huge balancing act, and uh, I think you've seen CMMI evolve in how it thinks about that over time. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a great point about. Um, I mean, so much of what CMMI does is realigning incentives, but even when you think about participation incentives, that's even another one to consider. So very interesting. Another model you mentioned was the Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program, which is an evidence-based program that tries to prevent the onset of diabetes in people with pre-diabetes. Why was this the first model to be scaled by CMMI, and what did you learn uh, from this scaling process? Yeah, so this model was really exciting and holds so much promise, but has been so challenging to actually get to people. And I think this is one of the most like vexing problems with scaling is when we know what works, how do we actually get it to people? And with the the DPP, part of what allowed it to be scaled was that we had so many years of evidence. So DPP started as an NIH trial, then became a large CDC program. Um, and then, you know, the the CMMI tested it through a healthcare innovation award, found that it was very successful in the Medicare population, was improving quality and reducing cost, and so was able to move toward expansion under CMMI's authority. But there were so many challenges in doing that. In order to expand specifically through CMMI's authority, you you have to take all these flexibilities that CMMI has and then try to put them into a much more traditional Medicare statutory framework. And so what that meant is that we actually ended up creating a new Medicare provider type. So we wanted community-based organizations like the Y, who'd been the first place to, to test this and had been very successful at delivering it. We wanted those kinds of organizations to be able to participate, but there's no fee schedule for community-based organizations. And so typically, if you were going to expand this into the physician fee schedule, you would have to say, like, this is going to flow through physicians. And so we created this whole new provider type under Medicare to allow um, those that diversity of organizations that offer DPP to come into the Medicare program. And and we really hoped that this would be a route to sustainability in terms of payment, like that this would offer an ability to move away from a grant-based model that these organizations had been functioning in to an ability to bill Medicare. And, um, And I think what we saw is that that is an incredibly steep hill to climb and that many of the requirements that were put in place in order to support Medicare program integrity, among other things, made the program so challenging to enroll in and implement. We also went straight to a value-based payment 
and, you know, versus kind of starting with with fee for service. And I think you see this as well with some other efforts where, for example, state Medicaid agencies have done really great work to create mechanisms for community-based organizations and housing organizations to enroll in and build Medicaid for services. But what you see is just that that is incredibly hard to do. Those CBOs are spending money on legal fees to get enrolled. Their claims are being rejected because they don't have the, the same claims infrastructure. And so, you know, a couple of years into Medicare, into the like expanded model of Medicare implementation, fewer folks had actually received the, the DPP under Medicare than had in the original Healthcare Innovation Award kind of pilot period, which I think just shows those difficulties of moving from, you know, a really flexible model that's with a high performing in, you know, in this case, the a number of YUSA sites to trying to take that and then go national in this value-based framework. We kind of went straight to sprinting at the national level. And, you know, I think it's hard because some folks were sort of joked when we were scaling DPP that there was a sense of like, better late than never in that so much evidence had accumulated of the effectiveness of this program. And like, if it were a, if it were a drug, it would have been paid for long before on the flip side, you know, we had this great evidence to expand, but then really like faltered in getting it out there because of all of these operational issues. And I think it just shows how like good policy without great operational planning can, can really can really fail to to get this great program to people. Your point about pilots, I found really interesting just thinking about, I mean, obviously CMMI does pilots, but that's often the way in for many healthcare startups and just thinking about how it's usually going to be the most excited, most innovative ones jumping on that <laughs> early, but that only represents a small slice of the total market. So, so how things might work in that pilot, but how you might need to adjust that in order to expand to other organizations. I guess continuing on this, topic of scaling. As mentioned, it's it's not only a key activity for a public sector organization rolling out new interventions, um, but really any type of healthcare organization, whether publicly or privately run. And you're now working in the private sector. What are some challenges to scaling that you've seen most often in, in this type of environment? So one of the places where I think the venture approach it ends up being so necessary is the context that I'm working now in Medicaid. You know, there's an old uh, sort of joke that like you've seen one Medicaid program, you've seen one Medicaid program. But actually, if you've seen one state's Medicaid program, you've probably seen like 20 programs because they're going to be operating separate package of services for their TANF population, their foster care population, their um, home and community-based services population, and navigating that complexity. Uh, a fun fact um, is that there are, the last time I saw the number, 267 home and community-based services waivers within Medicare in the, or excuse me, Medicaid in the country, which means that like the average state has more than five. And so if you are trying to 
operate in a value-based environment with a Medicaid program, if you are trying to navigate, you know, just what are even the covered services under those different programs, the the sheer amount of work that goes into figuring out how to optimize and function in any given Medicaid context is really is really significant. And also enables a real opportunity for learning when you're operating in these different contexts and can see what's working and, and how the set of tools differ in different environments. So I, I think that is something that venture can really bring because it's so hard to do that if you are thinking again, for example, of some of the community-based organizations trying trying to do this work. It's just a really steep hill to climb. On the flip side, of course, you are operating in multiple environments and trying to make sure that you can bring as much as possible that deep local understanding and so need those partnerships with experienced operators in those different environments. So beyond sort of partnerships with local organizations, understanding that local complexity What else do you think it takes to successfully serve Medicaid populations, specifically in value-based care models? Well, I'm going to tell you something that I love about Medicaid, um, which is that it forces you to look at equity issues in that, you know, when I was at CMS, many times we were talking about, like, how do we create the business case for equity? How do we create incentives that are going to appropriately reward efforts to close equity gaps or or at least not make inequities worse. And what is tremendous about working in Medicaid is the way that equity like becomes your business. And I will mm-hmm. give an example of that. We have um, a couple markets that we work in at, at CareBridge, uh, where I am now, where more than 50% of uh, our members um, have a preferred language other than English. And we've made incredible investments in hiring bilingual outreach specialists, bilingual clinicians, because you know we're operating in a Medicaid value-based payment context. We're at risk for these members, whether they are engaging with us or not. And we want them to be engaging with us. And we know that that happens so much better when we are outreaching to them and having clinical conversations with them in their own language. So on my team alone, we're able to do outreach in six different languages. We have probably on any given week, 40% of our um, visits are done in Spanish, but we have Mandarin Cantonese speaking folks, Russian speaking folks, and I'm monitoring every week, well, how many of our visits that should have been in Spanish ended up being in English with a translator because that is important to our bottom line because we get better results when we're having someone talk with someone in their own language. So that's like a very small example, but it is an example that I think illustrates the larger issue of, you know, you could look at that and say it's harder to be successful in Medicaid or you can look at it and say, how great is it that I'm spending every day worried about whether we are able to meet people where they are and like optimizing around that. Switching gears a bit to employer-sponsored insurance, uh, because you've also spent some time in that space, specifically at Morgan Health, but also probably beyond that, where would you recommend employers invest in when it comes to 
plan benefits, digital solutions, network development, really any of those areas that they might be uh, spending time thinking about or or investing um, dollars into? I think the biggest issue in employer-sponsored insurance is that employers just need to demand more and better for their employees and employees need to demand um, better like there's been incredible research done about the extent to which many employers are still plugging into the idea that the thing that their employees care most about is provider choice, which increasingly is not what you see in surveys of employees. The costs are out of control. People care about costs and they should care about quality, but there, the quality information in employer sponsored is often like so hidden and hard to obtain. So I think this is something that is just so frustrating about working in the employer sponsored area is that often people seem to think that, you know, quality is like a Medicare issue, all this quality variation that's been studied in, in Medicare. It's a huge issue in employer sponsored insurance, but employers just have much less true visibility into the quality of what they're getting for their networks. And they, they're, they're not really uh, optimizing around it. And equity is also a huge issue. And Morgan Health actually did a great report last year on quality and equity in the employer-sponsored space. And, you know, there's huge disparities in the population of people with employer-sponsored insurance. You have giant disparities in diagnosis and management of uh, high blood pressure. You have big disparities in maternal health outcomes. And, you know, I think there's often this sense that because people are spending so much more on (laughs) employer-sponsored, that it must somehow be better or like not be plagued by the same issues that, um, that are there in Medicare and Medicaid. But like those issues are there. Individual employers just are not always seeing them because of the way that data is so siloed. And I think we have some great examples of you know, high-performing networks that are able to deliver better outcomes for employees and at lower costs. Um, but, you know, the other issue is that so many employers, like their primary metric that they're looking at with employer-sponsored insurance is how many complaints am I getting? And that leads them to a really risk-averse place where it's like, oh, I only want to I don't want to switch. I don't want to kind of upset the apple cart because that's going to result in complaints from my employees. But you would never do that in any other area of your of your business. <laughs> You'd never say that my my primary metric is avoiding complaints, right? You would look <laughs> yes. at what am I actually getting for the money that I'm spending. And especially when that's such a big cost for employers and employees, I think working to help employees get savvier about making those decisions um, and giving them real choices is is a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, I found myself thinking about the whole, this is more a political de- debate about when you ask people about their employer-sponsored health insurance, they seem to like it. But based on all the points you brought up, when you actually pry further, um, it can be sort of harder to understand uh, why exactly, because as you laid out there, there are many, many issues with that system as well. And I would say United States of Care has done some amazing research on this. And one thing that they've found is that when you ask people about their employer-sponsored insurance and how satisfied they are with it, the counterfactual that people bring to the table is, what if I didn't have it? 
So they're basically mm-hmm. saying, is it better that I have this than if I didn't? They're not <laughs> the saying <answer> yes. <laughs> Yeah. And the answer is yes. Right. (laughs) But then when you dig a little bit deeper, you know, they're often very frustrated about many aspects of their ability to to navigate that insurance, to get the care that they need, you know, like especially with behavioral health care. So there's all sorts of things that are just like simmering under under the surface, but that are not always the way that people are are answering that that kind of high level question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Kind of wrapping up our conversation about um, your time at CMMI, I, I know that CMMI issued a strategic refresh. Um, I believe it was last year that included five strategic objectives based on its progress during its first decade of existence. So I'd love to hear any general reaction to this, but more specifically, if you were still there, what is one thing that would be your North Star as you plan for the next 10 years of CMMI? It has to be about building for scale. And I think this is the transition that CMMI is going through and, and appreciate the, the strategic orientation because I, I do think that historically, and this is, this is like really hard to do, but historically it was, we were often testing individual models. Um, And one of the things that was really awesome for me about working with states at CMMI was, of course, that like you're Maryland, you're thinking about how to control costs under the Maryland total cost of care model. You're not just thinking about bundled payments or shared savings or primary care. Like you're thinking about all of them together, right? And and, and many uh, big provider systems um, that were participating in multiple CMMI models were also doing that same thing. But I think the models were not always designed with an eye toward what that kind of co-participation would mean or how we might think about the trade-offs or opportunities for kind of arbitrage across these different models. And so really thinking about not just how am I going to test this in this group of 30 or 50 or 100 health systems or provider organizations. But what is it going to mean then when this is out there with all of the other models and all the other innovation that's happening? And how do I make sure that that I'm building something and testing something that that if it works, I, I, I actually could band and scale? So let's transition to speaking about CareBridge. But before we do, I want to address some of the dynamics that exist in the long-term care insurance market. And I only re- really quite recently started to understand these. So for some some context for our listeners, a fraction of the U.S. population has private coverage. Uh, long-term care is not covered by Medicare. It is covered by Medicaid. So either people are, med- are eligible for Medicaid or we can see people spend down their assets to become eligible or people end up paying a lot out of pocket to receive it, or people simply can't receive it because they can't afford it. So a pretty crazy system uh, based on how I see it. You know a lot more about it than I do. So are there any ways that this system works well in in your mind or, or your experience working in it? So there are a huge number of challenges in, in long-term care, almost limitless, but I will <laughs> share one really positive um, change in recent years 
And that is the movement away from nursing facilities mm-hmm. as the primary place that that long-term services and supports are delivered. So, you know, when Medicaid first had a long-term services and supports benefit, that was really exclusively delivered in nursing homes. So if you if you had the kind of uh, ADL limitations, activity of daily living limitations, if you had difficulty with things like you know, getting in and out of a bed, out of bed, in and out of a chair, you know, being able to prepare your own meals, being able to use the toilet by yourself, using able, being able to bathe by yourself. The, the only available option really was to uh, go into a nursing home. And over many years and a lot of hard work from many, many people, we have gotten to a place about five or so years ago where for the first time on the Medicaid side, more funding was going toward home and community-based services. So people receiving the who are who are eligible for that level of care, but receiving it in their homes and in a community-based setting versus in uh, nursing homes. And and that's huge, um, a massive shift and a huge indicator of progress. It has come with other challenges, and we need to make sure that we are delivering home and community-based services in a way that really optimizes independence and is cost effective and not sort of replicating the the nursing facility at, at times in in a different sort of guise but it is it is really tremendous progress let's chat about carebridge and and from chatting with you on some other occasions i know that you really believe in in what carebridge is doing so what about the carebridge model gets you really pumped so i think you know from the conversation so far i'm really passionate about getting what works to the people who need it most. And I think there is a real challenge in often the status quo in home and community-based services. There's something a little crazy about the fact that kind of often the, the default in a Medicaid context, if you, for example, have difficulty bathing, is to say, okay, we're going to give you uh, personal care services to pay someone who may be a stranger to come into your house and help you bathe. That's it. It's a very intimate act. Most people want to be able to, to do them that themselves, if at all possible. And so we know that there are a ton of uh, tools out there that might make someone better able to do that themselves. That may be a tub transfer bench, long arm shower nozzle, uh, a long handled sponge, grab bars, all sorts of things. And, and um, you know, this is an area where um, occupational therapists and, uh, and home modification professionals have been working for years. And we have a ton of evidence that these approaches can be very effective, but it's not always the status quo in Medicaid now. The other thing that's happened, of course, is an explosion of kind of social determinants of health-oriented benefits in Medicaid so that most Medicaid home and community-based services members have access to a huge array of services, but they may not be getting the kind of highest value combination of those services in terms of thinking about, well, how can we leverage all of these to support their independence and health and safety at home? So in many ways, it's kind of similar to some of the set of things where or challenges that value-based care has addressed in other spaces in terms of how do we really get services that can be very cost-effective and have a tremendous impact on, on members' quality of life. 
And, you know, if you are someone who, for example, has to wait for someone to, a, a paid caregiver to come to your house in order to be able to get dressed in the morning, and we can recommend a, a dressing bundle that is going to have something like a sock aid so that you can put your own socks on, so that you can put your own pants and shoes on, that is life-changing for people. And uh, again, I think by really bringing this multidisciplinary perspective. My team at CareBridge with decision support is bringing together analytics about member needs with a therapy perspective uh, of a team of folks with occupational therapy and physical therapy backgrounds, really looking at how can we support a member's independence and function and community inclusion while making sure that they have everything that they need to be safe at home um, but balancing those perspectives can be incredibly powerful. And so we we partner with Medicaid health plans to serve that home and community-based services population to promote that kind of independence. So I like to wrap my episodes up with a discussion um, about leadership and, and management. And you've obviously done this in many environments, including the federal government and, and now at CareBridge. So when you're leading a team, what are three things that you prioritize and see as critical to your success, the team's success, the business success? You can sort of choose the, the scale at which uh, you, you want to address that. So I think transparency is critical. I think everyone understanding the, the goals and having a shared definition of success is critical. And then I think treating people as individuals is is critical. And by that last piece, I mean, I've been a, a total convert to strengths-based leadership and really trying to identify what the different strengths are of the folks on my team and look at how I can foster those and leverage and complement those. And I love having a team where we're bringing different things to the table and and can you know, take advantage of each individual strength and, and bounce things off each other versus trying to turn everyone in kind of into kind of the same model manager, for example. Are there any things that you you practice or do that you think have helped you develop teams that rely um, on a strengths-based approach? Uh, in a couple jobs, I have had everybody on my team do the Gallup Strengths Inventory, um, and I've found it to be incredibly useful and a great tool for helping understand, uh, you know, where different folks are coming from, what's important to them, and how I can help them do their best work. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. So another another leadership um, area I want to discuss is learning from mistakes or missteps because I think having humility as well as a growth mindset are also critical to being an effective leader. So I'd love to hear what's a mistake or misstep you've made in your career that that you've learned the most from. Something that's a lesson that I have to learn over and over again is to to delegate and to empower my team. And I am a person who, when I see a tough problem, I want to, I want to dive right in and get my hands dirty. 
And there are ways in which that can be positive, right? If you are a servant leader and um, your team knows that you would never ask them to do something that you wouldn't do, I think those are those are awesome. Um, there's also versions of that where it can be really disempowering because people feel like you're always going to be doing the work alongside it, like in a in a negative way. And so I think one of the hardest lessons of leadership is knowing um, when to uh, when to dive deep and when to um, pick up and really let your team take the ball and run with it. So final question for people considering entering public service in healthcare, what's something that you think they should know based on uh, what surprised you most about your time working in government? I mean, if someone is considering entering public health, public service in healthcare, I would say just do it. <laughs> um, I think this shouldn't have surprised me, but I worked with amazing people in government and I worked with amazing people in government at every level. Um, the folks I worked with at CMS not only were incredibly smart, but also um, worked nights and weekends federal and state employees, I think of you on every holiday when (laughs) other folks have off. You know, I will never forget on Christmas Eve when we were trying to get AHC out the door, um, people working because I I think the announcement was like in January and there was stuff that had to get done. Um, That was just like one of many, many examples I could share from my time in government of just how hard people works. And that's not just true at the federal level. It's true at the state level that there are people um, incredibly smart, driven, mission driven, motivated people working incredibly hard uh, in public service to improve health and healthcare for all of us. I am grateful to them. And I think anyone who wants to jump into that fray um, should, should go for it. Well, Don, thank you so much for for taking the time to chat with me. You've had such a interesting, diverse career. Really happy that we got to focus on some of the common threads around value-based care, empowering teams, and and getting healthcare interventions that work to the people that need them. So, so thank you so much. Thank you. 